All right, good evening, everyone. How are you guys doing tonight? How many of you wanted a longer nap this afternoon? You feeling that? How many of you are like 10 out of 10, wide awake, ready to go? Snap. All right, well, try to hang with me. I think I saw two hands. It's going to be okay. I'm going to start by reading Jeremiah chapter 2. So you want to go ahead there and turn with me? And I'll make it really easy for you. We're going to start in verse 1. Jeremiah 2, verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And Israel was holy to the Lord. The firstfruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. And all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where's the Lord, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, and you made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that don't profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And if there's one verse I've got to have you guys cling on to tonight, it's going to be this one. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and that it's truth. I thank you that we don't have to come up with with the right way to do the Christian life and and how to serve you and know who you are. You've given it clearly in your word, and I'm thankful for that. And I pray that as we go through this passage, that you'd give us a greater understanding of who you are, and you'd help us to serve you better because of it. I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start with some pretty easy questions as we go into this, all right? So the book is Jeremiah, and so who's the prophet in this book? Nice, great job, all right? And do you guys remember, does he have a good message for Israel or does he have a bad message for them? Yeah, it's not a great message. I mean, basically the Israelites have forsaken God, they've gone their own way, and Jeremiah is now coming and saying, hey, there's gonna be some consequences because of this. There's gonna be some consequences because of the way that you're living and choosing to live. And so he actually starts by giving some illustrations of of the relationship that they used to have in the beginning verses. So in verse two, um, he uses a husband and a wife relationship. So I'll ask this question for you guys too. In a husband and wife relationship, what has to be there for the perfect one? I know we don't have a perfect example, obviously, but you can just yell it out. This is your chance to yell in church. What are some things that have to be in a perfect husband and wife relationship? Love. Yeah, love, absolutely. Yes, Kenzie. Romance. All right, that's good. What else? What has to be in a husband and wife relationship? God, yeah, God has to be the center of that relationship. What about, what's that? Faith. 
Trust. Oh, you got two answers. Wow, that's good. Commitment. Yeah, how about honesty, faithfulness? Yeah, loyalty. There's so many things we could fill in that blank. And in the relationship that God had with Israel, who, besides the romance, who did those things perfectly? God did. I mean, God was faithful to them. They were his people. He was for them. He protected them. He provided for them. He did all the things that were perfect in that relationship, and the Israelites failed. And yet God was faithful and continued in that relationship, even though they didn't deserve it. And so Jeremiah is reminding, man, guys, you had this relationship with God, and, and it was perfect on his hand. Why would you abandon that? And then he goes in verse 3, and he uses the illustration of an owner with his crops. Uh, it says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who ate of it found themselves guilty, and disaster came on them. Um, I don't know why, but when I read this verse, I kind of picture like, like a hick. I'm sorry if that's an offensive word. And he's sitting on the porch with a shotgun, and he's ready to just blow apart anything or anyone that comes against his crops. Because that's like everything to him. In the same way, Jeremiah is saying, man, just like an owner is so possessive of his crops, that's how God was with the people of Israel. If other nations came in, if people came to hurt them and, and to be against them, God's, God's heart towards his people was, I'm going to avenge them and I'm going to take care of my people. He was completely for the Israelites. And we'll see that even though that's the case, they still forsake him and go against him. So now Jeremiah starts to transition. And instead of just using illustrations, he says, let's go down memory lane. And we're going to walk through all the different ways that I've been faithful to my people and that I've taken care of them. So he starts off in around verses 6 through 7 talking about how he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And I think it might be interesting to note, too, that they weren't just in, the, in Egypt as slaves as an accident. This wasn't something that just happened. Um, if we look at the book of Ezekiel, it looks like them being enslaved in Israel, or I'm sorry, being enslaved in Egypt, was actually a result of some past sin. Ezekiel 28 through 9 says, But they rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. None of them threw away the abhorrent things that they prized, and they did not abandon the idols of Egypt. So I considered pouring out my wrath on them, exhausting my anger against them within the land of Egypt. So God's saying, man, I'm already frustrated with my people. But look what he says. But I acted for the sake of my name so that it would not be profaned in the eyes of the nations they were living among and whose sight I had made myself known to Israel by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So God is already being kind in pursuing his people and bringing them out of this land. And then as he comes into the promised land and Moses comes and says, I'm a spokesperson. I'm here to save you guys from this place. What are the first things that start happening? There's some miracles. What are they called? Man, you guys are good at this. The ten plagues, right? And imagine if you were there in that time period. All right, so here's this messenger that comes, Moses, and says, we're going to save you from the Egyptians. And you see the Nile being turned to blood. I'm a fisherman. I love to fish. I can't imagine if I was an Egyptian fisherman that day, and I threw in my line, and I'm just minding my own business, and all of a sudden it just turns to blood, and all these fish come up to the surface. I mean, that would be insane and disgusting. And then there's frogs, and there's lice, and there's hail, and, and all these incredible miracles that God does to display that he's the one true God. I mean, he's making a complete mockery of the gods of Egypt. And to show the Israelites that he's for them, and he loves them, and he's protecting them, and he's going to fulfill his promises that he made to them. And so the Israelites see all of those things, and they come out of Egypt, and they come to their first obstacle. What, what's the first obstacle that they come across? Yeah, yeah, the Red Sea. And do they say, man, God was so awesome. He, like, did all of these plagues and protected us and got us out of here. He can totally get us out of this fix. Or how do they react? They're like, Moses, you brought us out here to die. There's no way that we're going to make it. The Egyptians are coming, and they're going to make life even worse for us. And then what does God do? He does this miracle with Moses where he splits the Red Sea, 
and they walk across on dry ground. And as the Egyptians come across to take them over, God destroys the Pharaoh and this entire Egyptian army. I mean, if I'm an Israelite in that time period, I'm probably thinking, man, God is for me. God is awesome. He's going to take care of me and provide for me. And as we come across after that, God actually physically manifests himself. I mean, they see him as a pillar of smoke, a pillar of fire. When we come to Mount Sinai, they see God in all of his glory, so much so that they think Moses even died because there was such, such great glory being displayed on that mountain. And then what do they do at the bottom of the mountain? They worship a golden calf, and it's like, what is wrong with you people, right? I mean, God has done all these awesome stuff, and now you're just going to go and worship idolatry. It's just, it's crazy to me the amount of times that Israel continually fails, but, but God is merciful and still keeps them. He punishes them and he rebukes them, but he still is faithful to his people and continues to take care of them. And then they come to the wilderness, all right? And I'm going to ask you a question here too. How many of you guys like bread? Do I have bread people? All right, who, who you're like, man, sourdough is my favorite bread. I absolutely love sourdough. All right, I like it. How about those like cheese cheddar biscuits at Red Lobster? Those are phenomenal. I could eat just those and be happy. Olive Garden breadsticks. Yeah, amen. So I don't know what it is in your mind. Picture your favorite bread. Could you imagine God just giving you that every day? I mean, he just gives you manna from heaven. He provides for you in that way. I mean, that's awesome. And after a while that God provides for the Israelites in that way, how do they respond? Yeah, they complain, right? I mean, that's the iconic thing that the Israelites do. They just complain about everything. So much so that God gives them quail, and then what do they do with the quail? They complain about the quail, and God gives them water, but they still complain and say it's not enough. So Moses has to do a miracle with a rock to give them more water. I mean, the Israelites are really a difficult people to work with, right? Very difficult, and God still loves them and provides for them and makes them his people. And then they come to the promised land, right? This is the moment. This is what they've, they've all been cultivating to this moment where they come into the land that God's given them, and they take it for themselves and when the spies go in and they come back, what do the people decide? It's too hard, right? I mean, there's giants. This is a difficult land. There's evil people in this place. I don't think we can do it. And what had God just done to an entire Egyptian army? Completely massacred and wiped them out. And yet, for some reason, the Israelites don't have enough faith to think that God can help them take the land that he's promised. And so they're punished. And at this point, I mean, in my worldly human perspective, I would look at the Israelite people and say, let's just start over. Right? I mean, let's wipe out these people. I'm going to start off with a new, a new group of people, and we'll start from there. But God is so kind, and he says, you know what? I'm going to let your children inherit the land. Didn't have to do that, but God is faithful and good to his people, and so he does that. And so even in the wilderness, too, while they're, they're going through this punishment, God's still giving them manna. He's still giving them water. He's still taking care of them. And then when they come into the promised land, do you guys remember the first obstacle that happens there? Yeah, yep, they come across the Jordan River and they face the battle of, of Jericho, right? And Jericho was an incredible fortress. I mean, we've all heard this in our Bible, Bible school lessons, right? It was so thick that multiple chariots could go down it. It was an impenetrable fortress and people were foolish and stupid to try to go against it. And yet, what was their amazing battle plan to take over this place? They do laps around the wall and they do music and God just completely destroys this, this nation and the city. And they come in and take it for themselves. And God uses them to defeat nation after nation after nation. And they have their promised land. And that's where we come to the context we are now where they've seen God do all these things. God's repeatedly been faithful. And yet now they're, they're completely against him. And they're living life the way they want to. Two things they're doing. One, 
they've turned away from God and they start worshiping idols. If you look through the whole chapter of 2, it, in verse 5, it says, What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me and followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves? They're worshiping completely worthless things. Jeremiah 2.8, the, the prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. And then Jeremiah 2.11 says, Has a nation ever exchanged its gods, but they were not gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. This is a complete slap in the face of the Israelite people because Jeremiah is saying, these pagan nations around you that worship blocks of stone, pieces of wood, they're actually more faithful to these inanimate objects than you are to the one true God that's proved himself to you. And that's sad, right? And it goes even further, verses 26 and 27. It says, They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone you gave birth to me. Imagine that, the one true God that's been protecting them and taking care of them, they have traded that instead and have begun worshiping a tree and a stone. That's insane. That's crazy. And then not only do they start worshiping other things, they actually go into worldliness. They live life completely apart from what God would want. Jeremiah 2.20, For long ago I broke your yoke, I tore off your chains, you insisted I will not serve, and on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down like a prostitute. I mean, this idea that Israelites are so unfaithful to God that they're willing to do whatever they want, no matter how much it hurts God or goes against him. Verse 25, it's hopeless. I love strangers, and I will continue to follow them. Sorry, God, this is just what I want, and so I'm going to go for it. Verse 31, we will go where we want. We will no longer come to you. I mean, that's pretty blanket, right? God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to live life the way I want to live it. And then just a taste of the wickedness and the evil that the Israelites had gotten into. Verses 33 through 34 Say, moreover, your skirts are stained with the blood of the innocent poor. You did not catch them breaking and entering. And I don't know the entire context behind this, but for whatever reason, there were Israelites that were willing to have innocent poor people killed for their own gain and, and personal benefit. I mean, that's just the wickedness that the Israelites had gotten into. And I think there's two main reasons that the Israelites did this. One, if you look in verse 32, we find that they forgot God and they took him for granted. It says, can a young woman forget her jewelry? or a bride her wedding sash, yet my people have forgotten me for countless days. So how many of you guys are married? Nice. All right. Women, on your wedding day, I'm going to imagine that you have the perfect wedding dress picked out. It's beautiful. It's everything that you want it to be. At least that's the hope, right? What would happen if 30 minutes before the wedding, that dress was just gone and you couldn't find it? There might be some panic, right? There, there might be some serious problems going on. We got to get that dress. Why? Because it's a pinnacle part of that ceremony, right? It's a huge part of it. Guys, we, we probably care way less, right? I mean, I could show up in a pair of shorts and t-shirts, but because I love my wife or my wife-to-be, I'm going to be willing to wear that tux and find it if I need to, right? And maybe put it in another context too. What if the wedding rings were missing 30 minutes before the wedding? You can't go on with the wedding without those, right? I mean, they have to be there. And God's saying in the same way, Jeremiah's saying in the same way, just like you couldn't go on with a wedding without those things, that's how valuable I was to you. You couldn't go on with life without me, and you've forgotten how valuable that was. It's like going to a wedding without the dress or going to the wedding without the rings. It's foolishness. And so not only did they take him for granted, they forgot all the good things he's done, it also says, and this is verse 13, this is the main point I wanted to hit at, they start, they start to seek satisfaction in other things. It says, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, guys, God is an everlasting fountain of goodness that never runs dry, and he's over here giving them more than they need. 
He doesn't just give them what they need. He's gracious and kind and merciful and abundant in those things. And instead of going to this everlasting fountain of goodness, the Israelites go to what's called broken cisterns or digging in the dirt or trying to find these things that they think will hold water, but that never can. And the issue is that the Israelites really believe, man, if I follow this worldliness, man, if I go after these things that God tells me not to have, I think I'll find satisfaction and happiness in that. And God's saying, you're crazy. Because I'm this everlasting fountain, why would you go to these things? And I think it's really easy for us to look at the Israelites and say, man, I would never be like them, right? I mean, if I had all those miracles, all those incredible things that happened to me, I would never be like that. But I think the truth is that we're like the Israelites all the time. I think just like them, instead of coming to God and finding satisfaction in him alone, we go to these worthless things that can never satisfy, believing that they can. And we waste our lives on those things. And maybe your first response to that is, well, to be honest, it, it's not really fair because God hasn't broken down the walls of Jericho in my life, right? He hasn't split the Red Seas in my life. I mean, where, where are those miracles? If God gave me those miracles, man, I would come to him and I'd find satisfaction in him because he's proven himself good in my life. But can I argue this? I think that God has given you more in the cross and in Jesus Christ than anything that the Israelites had, far more. I mean, for one, he died for us, right? And I know that's the cliche thing to say, right? Well, yeah, that's what makes me a Christian, because he died for me. But do you understand the full ramifications of what that means? And do you, do you think about and remind yourself of the truths of what that totally, totally means? I mean, Romans 5, 6 through 8, and I'm just going to go through a lot of different truths here, so don't try to keep up, because you, you might get lost. Um, Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still weak, and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, just think about that phrase. God dying for the ungodly, the complete opposite of who he is, he's willing to come for and die. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. I mean, how many of you are willing to die for someone today? Totally willing. I mean, it's tough, right? And those of us that would raise our hands, it's probably someone that we care about deeply. We really love them and would do anything for them. But what if it's someone that's your enemy, that could care less about whether you exist, continually fails you and goes against you? You want to die for that person? That's a little harder, right? And yet the Bible says that that's us. It says for perhaps a good one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still against God, he died for us. That's the love that God has for us. Even though we're complete pieces of trash, he still comes to us and he dies for us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And this is just what we were before God saved us. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. I mean, I think I had talked about this last time I preached, but what's a dead person really good at doing? Just being dead. That's all they're good at doing. A spiritually dead person is just depraved and, and messed up, right? And look further what it says. It says, We lived according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So we followed after that. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. So we just did everything that our sinful natures wanted. Didn't care about God, did what we wanted ourselves. And we're by nature children of their wrath, as the others were also. Just by nature, we're disgusting sinners. That's what we are. But here's the incredible thing. is that But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. Even though we were those people... And this is Paul talking to a church, right? These are Christians he's talking to. Even though you were those people, I was willing to come and die for you. 
and this love that he has for us, willing to die for us, it was planned before you were even born. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. And my dad talked about it this morning. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption of himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Before I was even formed, before my life even started, God loved me enough to plan to do this for me. If you're a Christian, he did the same thing for you. That is an incredible love, and that's all wrapped up in what Christ did on the cross for us. And I think we forget that. But, but it doesn't even stop there. I mean, think of all the promises and the things that God does for us because of the cross. I mean, for one, he intercedes for us, right? Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, it talks about Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Does Christ ever stop interceding for us? No. There isn't any sin that I could do that's too great or too awful where he'll stop loving me. And every time I sin, Jesus says, I paid for that too. Jesus has paid for everything that I've done wrong. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, God will never stop through Jesus Christ interceding for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know why God is able to keep doing this? And do you know why Jesus is able to keep interceding for us? It's because when Jesus died on the cross, he took all the sin, the wrath, everything we deserve, and he placed it on himself, and he gave us his righteousness, like my dad talked about this morning. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see the wicked, horrible, messed up sinner that I am. He sees his own son. The love that he has for Jesus Christ, he has that love for me. That's amazing that God would do that for sinners like us. And then God transforms us, right? Not only has he made these promises, not only has he saved us from our sins, but he's promised to make us better people. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we probably know this verse by heart, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? God has promised that in every situation we're in, no matter how hard it seems or how awesome it is in that moment, God has promised all those things are being used to make me more like his son, to bring him more into his image. He's committed to that. And Philippians 1, 6 reminds us that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a day when we're completely glorified and made perfect, and that's set in stone. There's nothing we can do to mess that up. And then this love he has for us, and I talked about this a little bit last time I preached too, this love is really personal. It's not like God just looked at the majority of, of everyone and said, oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to die in a broad sense for people. He actually personally died for you as an individual. And he loves you that way. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Remember we talked about this last time. How many of you guys, your parents fed you rocks and poisonous snakes growing up? I mean, I hope not, right? Because it's messed up. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, yes, just like that's messed up, and even your earthly mothers and fathers, as imperfect as they are, know how to love you in this way, how much more does your heavenly father? When I come to him and I pour my heart out to him, he, he loves me like a father does. This love that he has for us in Jesus Christ is intimate and it's personal and it's awesome. And I think we wrap all those truths up and we just forget about them. Just like the Israelites, we take for granted all the things that God's done for us and we don't remind ourselves of these truths. And as a result, we begin to slip into the very thing that the Israelites did. And that's trying to seek satisfaction in other things. And there are so many things that I could fill in the blank here. 
that we make idols and we try to worship. But I'm just going to hit on a few of them just to kind of make my point of what I'm trying to say. I mean, for one, it could be relationships, right? And there is nothing wrong with that. I love friendships. I love family. I, I love church family. I love all the different relationships that we can have with people. It's great. Girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife. Awesome. But there are many times where we actually begin to worship those things and we make them a broken sister and we make them a broken well. Where I think, man, I can find all of my satisfaction and all my happiness in this relationship. And instead of living for God and coming to Him for satisfaction, I go to those things. I'm willing to sin. I'm distraught when these things don't come the way I want them to. But here's the reality, is even the person that you love most in life, can they fail you? Yeah. They can disappoint you. They can, they can even mess up so bad, or you could mess up so bad, that that relationship is never restored. And this thing, if I'm holding on to it and I'm finding all my satisfaction in this person, then man, when God takes that away from me, I'm going to crumble and fall. But if my satisfaction is in Jesus Christ and in God alone, then when I lose this relationship or this relationship doesn't go the way I want it to, can I be okay? Yeah. Because God is my foundation and he's the fountain that I come to. Does that make sense? Uh, it could be possessions too. I'm going to expose myself for a second, all right? Because I am not a huge car guy. I just don't know these things at all. So maybe if I actually did some research, I could tell you a better dream car. But my dream car is a Honda Civic Type R. I just think it's cool. And a lot of people make fun of me for that. And like, why in the world would you want a Civic? That's okay. You can hate. You can judge. It's fine. But in my life, if I never get that Honda Civic, can I be okay? Yeah. But you know how many people say, man, if I just had this in life, I'd be okay. Man, if I just had this thing, it'd make life so much better. And we worship that thing. I don't know what it is in your life, but possessions we worship all the time. We think if I just had it, I'd find satisfaction. But how many of you guys, I know we've all experienced this, where you think you need that thing, especially as a kid. You get it, and then a week later, it's just sitting in the closet, and you never use it. Because that's the reality of possessions and things, right? It's just a never-ending cycle where we go, man, that will satisfy, that will satisfy, that will satisfy, and it never ends. Why would I go to that thing and try to make that my idol and something I worship when I have Jesus Christ who will satisfy me more than, than any Honda Civic ever will? Maybe here's another one, maybe hobbies. And again, hobbies aren't wrong. I love fishing, all right? But what would happen if I go out on a day and it's the perfect day, right? It's the weekend and I have a sunny day, I have a boat that I'm borrowing and I get to go out on the water and just enjoy fishing and then my rod breaks in half right before I start. I mean, if I find all of my satisfaction in fishing, that devastated my day, right? Because that's what I was worshiping. But if Christ is everything to me, then when these things fail me, like hobbies and I'm not able to do the things that I want to do, I'm actually okay because I know God loves me and he has a plan in that. And he is so much bigger than that thing. Does this make sense? And guys, I think even sometimes sin itself is what we turn to and we worship because we think it will satisfy and that's why I had James be read is because it talks about that. In James 1, 16 through 17, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There are so many different sins that promise satisfaction that, that don't bring it. Uh, I mean, a good illustration. So as a kid, I had to share video games with my brother. And, and I'll be real. I mean, there's times that I felt like it was my turn and it wasn't his turn. And maybe the best way to fix that would be to hit him or steal the controller or do these different things. And in that moment, that sin looked so good because it gave me what I wanted, right? But in reality, what happened after I did that? I lost the games for a month and I lost the very thing that I was trying to fight for, right? 
And that's the same thing with sin, is there are so many consequences and horrible things that happen because of sin. And God has a better plan for our lives, and yet, and yet we think, man, it's okay. Because this is what I need. This is what I want. This will give me happiness. And James is saying, don't be deceived by that. Anytime that you try to go after something that God has directly said is wrong, it won't satisfy because all good things come from him and only him. So why would you go to that sin when God is this everlasting fountain of goodness that you can run to? Um, I want to end with just, just some personal illustrations, maybe to further bring out this point. Um, so when I was 14, I, I really liked this girl. I thought she was awesome. I barely knew her, but I thought she was cute. And I was pumped after a soccer game that we won and we weren't supposed to win. And I ran up to her and I told her that I liked her. And by some miracle, she said she liked me too. And I actually, I dated her basically my whole high school, like from age 14 to 18. And you know what I found out though? Is that this person that I loved incredibly, that 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 relationship could be imperfect. Here's the craziness, just to illustrate how she became an idol to me. Here's the craziness of the thing. My, my parents didn't want us holding hands or doing anything like that, right? And I actually at one point remember arguing with my dad, and I said, Dad, you're not letting me love her in the way that God told me that I'm supposed to love her because I can't hold her hand. I mean, that's crazy. I look back at that now, and I say I'm an idiot. But in that moment, I was so blinded by this thing that I thought brought satisfaction in this girlfriend that I was willing to, to be basically crazy and even go after things that are wrong and even sin because I was worshiping that thing. And, and thankfully, by the end of it, and we both had mistakes, right? Every, things happen. But by the end of it, it, it didn't even work out. And we broke up at 18. And thankfully, I did come to a point where I went, man, this thing, this person can't bring me full satisfaction. God can. But, but if I had placed everything I had in this person, then it would have devastated me. Um, another illustration, I, I went to college and I was homeschooled, all right? So college to me was very exciting because I got to meet actual people and hang out with them and be social and become a normal person. So I was pretty pumped about that. But you know what I found? I, I tried to be friends with tons of people and get to know tons of people. And by the end of my freshman year, I was broke and I had to go out of gap year. And when I left, I, I felt like I actually didn't really belong totally anywhere. Like all these people that I depended on and I thought I'd find happiness in as friends, I, I, I lost them. And I don't blame them or anything. It's just the way life goes sometimes. But but if I place all my happiness and satisfaction in friends, then man, that crushes me, and it did. But if God is my only satisfaction, if he's the one that I turn to and place my foundation in, then it's okay when those things fail. What, what I'm trying to say at the end of this, at the crux of everything, is that there are so many things in our hearts that we love more than God, and we think that they satisfy and that they'll bring us the satisfaction that we need, and they just don't. So don't waste your life. I mean, don't like, be like me and think a girlfriend's it <laughs> or feel like, oh, a best friend is it. These things aren't it. These are temporal things and they're good and they're awesome and it's totally okay to love the things that God's given us. But we can't worship them. So I, I want to take a second and this is an invitation. I don't do the whole like come to the altar and stuff, but I, I think it's really good for us to, when we hear God's word to take a moment and just pray to him and talk to him about what we've talked about. So I would love everyone to just close their eyes and bow their heads and um, just take a second to talk to him. I mean, maybe you say, man, Hudson, I, I know that there's idols in my heart. I mean, I'll be honest. I know there's idols in my heart too. And, and, and maybe you just pray, God, please help me. I, I don't want to worship these things and think that they're, they're all satisfying because they're not. You are so much greater. And you just ask God to forgive you and, and give you a greater heart for him. And maybe you're down his goodness and you're saying, man, God, I, 
I, I don't see the incredible things that you did for the Israelites. I'm really struggling to trust you and go to you as that everlasting fountain because I just haven't seen that goodness. I mean, brother or sister, can you look at the cross and see that God's proven his love for you there? He deeply cares for you. I mean, place your trust in him. And then maybe, I'm not going to assume that every single person here is, is saved. I mean, maybe you've struggled to find that satisfaction because you never actually accepted Christ. And I promise you, I had so many unsafe friends that I went through life with, and I saw them trying to figure out life without Christ, and it, it's a hopeless. So please, would you turn to Christ? Would you find your satisfaction in him? So just with those thoughts, I'd, I'd like to take a few minutes and, and just pray to God in that way. God, I thank you so much, again, for this truth that we can work through. I, I think if we're all honest, we all have different idols that, that we bend to and that we worship all the time, God. But you have done an amazing thing in the work of Jesus Christ and given us a relationship that is so much more valuable with you than anything else this world has to offer. So God, please help us. I mean, break, break our stubborn will to go after these things. And God, just show yourself. Show us that you are so much more valuable than anything else this world has to offer, God. And for those that are struggling to trust and see your goodness, God, please show them your good. I mean, you've showed it on the cross. You've showed it in your word and the truths that you have there, the promises you have for your people. God, you are so good and you are so loving. Help us to turn to you and to trust in you and to rely on you as the fountain of everlasting goodness instead of going after broken cisterns that can never satisfy. God, I pray all this in your name. Amen.